Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. This is a sample bonus episode. Twice a month, our crew of researchers, Amanda and myself, get together for a roundtable discussion that has been described as feeling like, quote, getting to hang out with a group of friends who actually know something about the world. And it's also been lamented as a, quote, shame the wider audience doesn't get to hear it. So, Here's 20 minutes for free, so you can know what all the fuss is about. There was a piece in Rolling Stone just this last week, and the headline was, Atlanta Spa Shootings, What Korean Language Media Told Us That the Mainstream Media Didn't. And this is a piece by Regina Kim. I'm just going to read a little excerpt here, and then I'm sure we'll have a lot to, to unpack. Quote, both Atlanta-based Korean newspapers and South Korea's top news outlets immediately labeled the massacre as a racially motivated hate crime, with multiple news sources reporting that the shooter was heard saying, I am going to kill all Asians, as he gunned people down. Within a couple of days, Korean language media revealed that all four Korean victims were in their 50s to 70s and that three of the women did not provide any massage services but opened doors and cooked food. By the end of that week, Korean language media had also reported key statements from people with knowledge of the incident and from victims' families and acquaintances that have yet to be revealed in English language media. By contrast, however, English language media outlets seemed content to take the killer at his word that his motive was a, quote, sex addiction and that race did not play a role in his crime. Many were quick to assume that these massage parlors provided illicit sexual services, even though Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms had stated that the spas were legally operating businesses that have not been on our radar. And no evidence was shown that these were places of prostitution. And while English language media quickly published detailed profiles of the shooter, its coverage of the victims in large part remained vague and often inaccurate, butchering the Asian victims' names, so much so that the Asian American Journalists Association released this pronunciation guide, and there was a link there, and even mixing up their faces. The often cringeworthy news reports illustrated that Asian Americans unfortunately continue to be othered and dehumanized by U.S. media today. I do want to point out first that it doesn't matter if it was a legally up and up massage parlor or a prostitution parlor, it's still murder and still probably a hate crime. And that distinction really should not hold any weight. But in America, it does. And correcting that distinction is part of what needs to be done to highlight the stereotypes that get fed into from, from day one. Yeah. So I I know Aaron and Deanne had some thoughts about this piece, which goes into a number of different uh, instances of kind of lazy, poor journalism. I'll just go real quick because I know Aaron did a lot more research on the, the topic than I did. I read that article and it was the first time I heard their ages, which is amazing. Like we're, yeah, how far past it. And I just heard that they were in their fifties and seventies, but I read, it said Korean immigrants often don't feel sadness because they expect to be treated poorly, which is just, just so crushing. This is an amazing thing for that community because it's so focused nationally, but they just don't normally expect any good treatment. So why would they be upset about this horrible treatment and the 
constant drumbeat, like you said, of like it's a it's a brothel. It was sexually motivated, sexually motivated. What does that have to do with people getting killed? I, I you know, that's old. I guess you know if you go back to like Jack the Ripper, he was killing prostitutes, so it was. I guess it's okay or whatever. But they were still people, and somehow more salacious. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's the darker part of the story is that it sells more. It's more entertaining, I guess, because that's what gets clicks and gets people to watch the news story. And if it was just 50-year-old women, 70-year-old women, would it even have been as big a news story? If we had just instantly known the truth about who they were, what they did? I don't know. And I'd also point to what you're saying. Constantly we see, especially with black victims of police shootings, you know, immediately their record and what they've done and any criminal history of at all is immediately highlighted and becomes the focal point. And that's what we're seeing right now with the Derek Chauvin trial. They just continue to try to point to George Floyd's illegal activity as an, you know, opioid addict or whatever, that that somehow justifies murder. Like this is a theme. And I think we're seeing it again here, but just in a different way, maybe through a different angle. Well, it is the like constant push against trying to villainize white people, right? There has to be a caveat. There has to be something that someone did to deserve that. Mm. White people cannot have just like anger and unjustifiable like violence that's leaking out. Like there has to be something that caused such action. But I think what Dion said about the expectation that also kind of plays into the fact that people were hesitant to even talk to, you know, these English reporters because they were afraid of being misrepresented. And that alone tells you like the perspective of someone that they don't think you're coming at this story. Honest, like this is a tragedy. I mean, this is terrible. And the fact that I actively live in Atlanta and it happened here, it is so awful. And yet, you know, reporters didn't take the time to learn how to pronounce the victims' names and then properly say that. I can only speak for myself, but considering what happened, I would be practicing that till the moment I went on air to make sure that I was able to do justice to the victims of this. Absolutely. And I think that the other piece that they mentioned that kind of shocked me was that there were witnesses and people in the area who were interviewed people that the police went to notify to give a heads up that there was a shooting happening and that the shooter was saying, I'm going to kill all Asians, that those those words were said to these other store owners in the community in the area. And that was reported in Korean outlets, but no one in the English media wants to go there. And there has been some insinuation that, well, because, you know, we don't have a translator or because those witnesses won't put their names on the record or something like that. Well, yeah, there are a lot of reasons there why people want to protect themselves. You're in the middle of a hate crime situation. You're not exactly going to want your name in the paper right away. And there was another piece in this article that talks about how there are victims, uh, well, witnesses to the shooting who are traumatized right now and who are not ready to come forward in the media and put their names out there and, and put their faces out there. They probably will eventually, but the English media, the white media, I, I really am going to frame it that way because they see a horrific incident. And what they want to do is splash everybody across television, make big headlines, 
big pull quotes and the sensationalism, that kind of automatic sensationalism of these stories becomes the way they cover these stories. So instead of thinking through this more deeply and saying like, geez, there's some cultural issues here. This is a hate crime. Like we have to think about this differently. We have to approach people who we might want as sources differently. We need to be culturally sensitive. All of these things just get lost because it's America's next mass shooting and we have a formula for how we cover this and how we tell the public about it. I know we're mostly focused on the media in this, but to add another layer to witness testimonies, think about how the police are going to go about collecting them. Did they take the time to work with organizations to one, yes, these are traumatized people who witnessed something horrific happen within Mm -hmm. their community, who also now fear for their families after witnessing what happened? So did they take the time to have mental health providers, organizations that specifically work with those communities? If there were language barriers, did they have translators? And what kind of line of questioning was being done? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I think a lot of people don't trust the police. That goes across communities, but especially in minority communities. If you're not showing the capacity to be approachable, why would you expect to have the witnesses? And did they even care about getting those witness testimonies? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we can talk about the bias of, you know, having a Korean reporter go out to these and we can talk about those biases, but, you know, the sheriff who clearly had racist postings on his Facebook While there were critiques, there were very few and nobody questioned his ability to investigate and do his job. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a kind of interesting uh, layer to it. Yeah. So to wrap up this story, I want to zero in on something you mentioned that was mentioned sort of in passing in in that article, which is that part of the reason. So we've been describing all the problems with the reporting, why it wasn't done well, why it was done better in Korean outlets. and one of the fundamental sources of that problem is that editors for news outlets had access to reporters, Korean American reporters who speak Korean and understand the community who volunteered to cover the story and were told Maybe that's not a good fit because maybe you're too close to the story or your bias may show through. You are Korean. It's a story about Koreans. How could you not be biased? (laughs) (laughs) And that is actually something that comes up over and over again and is an echo of the exact same phenomenon that gets talked about in, in all sorts of different scenarios related to white supremacy. The idea that white people, particularly male white people, particularly straight white male people, are the default human beings Mm -hmm. who can see the world objectively and everyone else has their perspective skewed by their personal experience because, you know, they have a personal experience, whereas white people have a universal experience. And that gets talked about in hypothetical terms more often than not, but this is a really great example of what that looks like when the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. And I would just say one last point too, and along those lines is that when you don't try to get the perspective of the witnesses, and this is true for any story, you know, I'm now I'm drudging up my, my J school stuff, but like 
for any story, if you do not depend on witnesses, testimony, quotes, interviewing people who are actually there, people who understand the climate of that area and what's going on, and you only take the statement that the perpetrator has given to police, that is gaslighting the victims of a crime. And that is journalism malpractice. Not only journalism malpractice, but also just like a horrific thing to do, right? And there was a quote in that story that talks about the fact that everyone was given the narrative of the murderer while gaslighting the victims by focusing on hypersexualization of Asian women and showing inhumane regard for immigrant low-wage workers, which is a whole other piece of this that also doesn't get talked about enough. So many, so many layers and so many trips in trying to cover this story accurately. And, And look, all of us, I mean, I learned so much from this article. I was not seeing this stuff as a lot of people weren't. And it made me angry (laughs) to read this and realize how much information I am not getting, that I am not understanding the complete picture here, and that it's difficult for some reason to get the complete picture. And that shouldn't be the way it is. Yeah. So just while this is on my mind, and I I have you on the line, Aaron, you're working on an episode on LGBTQ issues. And in case I forgot to mention later, if you could just not let your bias toward thinking that members of the LGBT community (laughs) are like normal humans seep into your research work, I I would appreciate that. I think it would really elevate the the journalistic standards of the show. I was actually going to say I might be a little too close. (laughs) But also the expectation that, yes, I'm not part of the specific community, but that I would go in and just not be affected. Like people were just killed, gunned down yeah. and no amount of, you know, humanity is going to seep into this. I'm going to be able to look at everything in this unbiased way. Like, I mean, that's ridiculous. Your bias against people getting murdered. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm biased against murder. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if you could come to this story with as much ignorance as possible, I think that would really be the best <laughs> way to, to get the best work out of you. There was a clip from Tom Hartman in a recent episode about gun violence and what to do about it. He sort of made the argument that we need to see more graphic images of the results of gun violence because all through history, that has been a really catalyzing tactic. Everything from Emmett Till's open casket to war reporting and showing the horrors of war have had really big impacts on changing public perspective. And I think we just have a little bit of updates and and nuance to add to that. It, It just got us thinking in a couple of directions. So first, I read a story about a high school teacher who was having the Chauvin trial played live in his class, and the students were going to conduct a mock jury experiment. So the trial was real. The students would watch the trial. They would listen to the real evidence. They would listen to the instructions from the real judge, and then they would pretend to be the jury. And of course, all of this was done without school approval, school board approval, parental approval or anything like that. And so kids in this high school class were like watching the George Floyd murder being replayed live during the trial. 
and parents were none too happy about it, which is just sort of an, an example of how not to do this sort of thing. In the clip from Tom Hartman, he was pretty explicit about how this needs to be done carefully because there is a balance between traumatizing and re-traumatizing people and catalyzing change. So willy-nilly showing high school students murder on television without any <laughs> like professional health, uh, you know, mental health supervision or anything like that, that's pretty far on one end of the spectrum of don't do that. But the benefits are are there to be seen as well. And and Dion, I was mentioning all this to you and you were reminded of a story from a few years ago. Yeah, it brought to mind Ray Rice, which is maybe kind of out of left field. But uh, Ray Rice, former running back for the Baltimore Ravens, he hit his then girlfriend in an elevator in a casino. And he got suspended for, I believe it was two games. And there was a little bit of outrage about it that he did something terrible. So the NFL decided they would make a mandate that if this happens once, you get suspended for X amount of games. I think it was four or five. And if that happened a second time, you get suspended for a lifetime. Well, before the season started, video came out. I think TMZ released it, which is, you know, kind of tied to what you were saying. Maybe not everybody should just release stuff, but release the actual elevator, the security footage of the incident. Then it became a national story. Like, oh my God, this guy hit his girlfriend. He knocked her out cold. He dragged her out of the elevator. It was it was horrifying to see it. But if you had been following the story, you already knew it was horrifying. But as soon as it happened that the video came out, it became a national story. There was a lot of outrage. And then he got suspended indefinitely, ended up getting cut from the Ravens. He was pretty close to the end of his career anyway, as a asset to the NFL, because he's not a human being. He's a product, but that's a whole nother story. So he never played again. And just to wrap it up, I've seen some interviews with him and now his wife, same woman. He's done a lot of work. He's an advocate for abused women. So don't want to just leave him out there as like some sort of villain, but people seeing the video made a huge difference in how he was punished for that crime. We didn't really talk about this, but this uh, there was an NFL player named Greg Hardy. He was accused of beating his then girlfriend on a stack of guns. There is no video of it. He was suspended for a little bit and he ended up getting, I think, signed by the Dallas Cowboys immediately after that, played se- played a full season. That story was way worse on paper than what Ray Rice did, but there's no video of it. And he never really got anything resembling the punishment that Ray Rice did. He was also, I guess, technically a better player. So that's a whole, again, Ugh. a whole nother can of worms. But like seeing is believing. So when stuff like that happens, and if you can actually see it. it does. So that is it for today's free sample. I suspect that by this point, you're just wondering where you should go to throw your money at us so that you can hear the rest of it, as well as all of the previous roundtable discussions and bonus clips that go into the regular show, of course. Well, the URL you are seeking is bestoftheleft.com slash support, and that can be found right in the show notes of today's episode. And your timing would be good. As I mentioned recently, the second quarter of the year, April through June that we're in right now, it's the slowest quarter for ad sales. And so we're feeling that pinch a little bit right now. And I suggested that maybe that means that the second quarter is a particularly great sign.
and I suggested that maybe the second quarter is a particularly great time to sign up for a membership, especially a yearly membership, because then you can support us right when we need it, year after year. I also said that anyone who wanted to back us in this way I also said that anyone who wanted to back us in this way during the second quarter might end up being known as second quarterbackers, which is admittedly a pretty lazy football-related play on words that doesn't really fit the ethos of the show very well. So what we could use most is your support as a new member, but if you came up with a different name for our second quarter membership campaign, that would be great too. So that's bestoftheleft.com slash support to sign up or send an email with suggestions to j at bestoftheleft.com. That's also where you can email to request a financial hardship membership. We absolutely welcome anyone who can't comfortably afford a membership to reach out because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information, which is why every request is granted, no questions asked. Now, if you can afford a membership and you want to scam us, you're also welcome to do that. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, though I hope that you would. So thanks for listening. Go home. We love you. You're very special. Cool.